Welcome to Empathy Affect, the Force Marsh media podcast that explores the human side of government. I'm Melissa Harris, and welcome to part two of our episode that is focused on understanding the important work of the Healing Community Study. This study is being run by the National Institutes of Health's HEAL initiative to reduce opioid-related overdose deaths by 40% over three years across 67 highly affected communities. If you haven't already, dip back into our feed for part one, where we teed up some of the history of the study and the evolution of the opioid crisis to date. We spoke with National Institute on Drug Abuse Healing Community Study Director, Dr. Radonna Chandler, and Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration Center for Substance Abuse Treatment Director, Dr. Ingvild Olson, to learn about some of the challenges leading to today and how NIH and SAMHSA are each playing a role in the study and crisis response. Doctors Chandler and Olson are back again for part two as we continue learning about the intersectional needs of addressing the opioid crisis and how the study has resulted in communication strategies, resources, and other outcomes that can help us curb the national crisis. I think a great place to jump back in is about how breaking down siloed systems like healthcare, public health, and criminal justice policies can help strengthen the way we address the opioid crisis. Let's jump back in with Dr. Chandler. I think in the healing community study, we attempted to do that. We understand that an individual who has a substance use disorder is is crossing multiple systems within a community. And you want there to be no wrong door. You want everyone to be focused on trying to identify the issues that person is having. And you want everyone to be working in concert together to be able to provide them the support to prevent an overdose and to prevent an overdose fatality. So if someone's in the community and they're on medication for opioid use disorder, whether it's methadone or buprenorphine, and for whatever reason, they find themselves in a jail, you don't want that treatment to end. You want them to be able to continue to receive that treatment while they're incarcerated. However, the healthcare systems that are inside a jail, as an example, may lack the capacity, they may not have the providers, they may not have the funding to be able to necessarily continue that treatment. And the, the, the best approach is where someone who is either in care or wants to get in care can access it regardless of where they are within a community as they move between these different systems. They definitely have different missions, whether it's health or whether it's safety, although I've said for a long time, good public safety is public health and good public health is public safety. I think that there's a a sweet spot there. We've looked at evidence to suggest that these systems coming together and working together is a really important way to address something like the overdose epidemic that's occurring. In addition to have different missions, they have different funding streams. That's a big problem and a big barrier. A jail, for example, has a different funding stream than a treatment program. And the jail setting up some of the programs like medication for opioid use disorder or naloxone distribution, they may not have that within their budget. They may need to be able to find ways to support that and to find the dollars to support that elsewhere. And then 
if there are gains made, so let's say that a justice system implements a program and there are huge gains made because people live full lives in the community and their crime lowers and recidivism lowers. And so people come back to the jail or the prison less. That doesn't necessarily mean the jail or the prison gets to have that money to provide more and better treatment. So I think a different admission, which um, I think that can be overcome, but I think figuring out how to work with these funding streams I'm figuring out how to integrate the workforce so that you have the people with the knowledge around treatment that can work hand in hand with a particular type of criminal legal system environment is really important. It sounds like it takes a lot of collaboration and adaptation to create this integration. At a larger level, that can be hard, but your study can show some of the benefits of working together especially amid the rapidly evolving and deadly nature of the opioid crisis since 2018. To reach your goal of reducing opioid-related deaths by 40%, how has your study adapted and worked with participating communities to help meet your goal and make a difference for those impacted populations? So one of the ways that the study has kept up is um, we're really proud to have as a part of the intervention a series of health communications campaigns. And those health communications campaigns are done and developed jointly with the communities. And so as they've seen things change, they've reached out and asked for different types of information and materials. So, for example, um, when we kicked off our communications campaigns in our we, we divided the communities in half and we offered the intervention initially to a group that we called wave one. By the time we went to wave two, there was a real, a real ask from the communities to have more information related to fentanyl as a part of our naloxone and overdose education. And so we developed a lot of different materials that the communities can use around fentanyl. And then most recently, they've been asking about xylazine. And so we're in the process of developing some information to be used with the um, health communications campaigns around xylazine as well, so that we can raise awareness so that people can know about a little bit more and be better informed of what's in the drug supply, as well as some of the consequences that they might experience. And, you know, how it's impacting communities, it, it varies. No community is the same, <laughs> and the states are very different, and there are some subtle differences in the drug supply between the four states, although um, there, there is a lot of similarity in terms of the presence of all of the, the synthetic opioids, the fentanyl, and um, we're starting to see more and more xylazine you know, I, I would say that we first started hearing about it and talking about it in Massachusetts and New York, but now we're seeing a higher prevalence of xylazine in the drug supply in um, Kentucky and Ohio as well. And just working with the communities to be able to get as much of the overdose education and the lockdown distribution out as possible, I think in some ways for the communities that sort of serves as a rallying cry for them. They're already incredibly motivated, 
but that motivates them even more. They already have a sense of urgency, but that provides an even greater sense of urgency for them to be able to try to get out there and reach and touch as many people as they can to keep them from experiencing an overdose fatality. I think this is a good moment to talk about the FDA's recent approval of over-the-counter sale of naloxone, which, as you mentioned, is a, an effective way of reversing an overdose. What do you make of this approval? Is it going to be effective in new, moving the needle? And what other progress can we make in making effective treatments available? I think, you know, SAMHSA, we were very excited about this policy change. You know, I think making naloxone and access to naloxone as broad as possible is part of what SAMHSA has really been promoting. And, and I think through the the Hilly Community Study, you know, kind of in collaboration with NIDA and, and lots of other federal partners as well. I think there have been a lot of questions as we've, you know, not only in in New York and Kentucky, Ohio and Massachusetts, we've heard communities, you know, studies, but other states, you know, there has been enthusiasm and also lots of questions. What is the cost? That will become a determining factor in some areas for people, but that this is also, you know, continuing to, to kind of spread the message that naloxone is incredibly important, even with, you know, xylazine introduced into the supply. And not only is it important for people who have an opiate use disorder, but it's important for everyone because drug supply is just so adulterated now with fentanyl so that, you know, people can be exposed to it unknowingly, even if they're not really using opioids. If that's not, you know, kind of the, the substance that they are looking for or buying or, or using. So I think this, this change. And one of the things that we're hearing from communities is that, you know, they, they hope that this will also continue to normalize, not only carrying a lockdown, but then also kind of normalize some of the uh, approaches and responses to the, the overdose epidemic. So I have two concerns about that. One is that I don't think that can be the only solution for communities. So I have concerns that a community would then end their naloxone distribution on their own. And the price is going to really be important here and whether people will go and get it or not. But for those whose hands you really want naloxone in, which is the people that are using the substances, they don't go to pharmacies in many instances. They've not experienced good treatment in pharmacies. A lot of pharmacies are hostile and because of stigma, don't want them there and don't want them as customers. And so I have real concern that they are not going to go to a pharmacy, first of all, to get naloxone because they don't go get it when it's available there. It's available there and in some states can walk in and get it from the, the pharmacist and they're not going and doing that. And then the second is that they're not going to pay for it. They're not going to have the ability to pay for it. So I think that it's going to be really important for states and communities to continue naloxone distribution and purchasing of naloxone to hand out and get into the hands of people, in addition to um, being able to have it available over the counter. Yeah. And just lastly, I so appreciate Redonna raising that because, you know, SAMHSA does fund through the state open response grant, through the block grants. There are other SAMHSA grants other federal government HRSA grants as well that really support states and communities in making sure that they have access to naloxone for distribution, as well as really thinking about, you know, saturation and how to really approach 
and the loss on saturation in our communities and our states as well. And so absolutely critically important. So I want to talk about recovery for a little bit because we've talked about prevention and treatment, but recovery is also incredibly important. How can we bridge some of the science we're learning about through the healing community study or the HEAL initiative as a whole to the realm of recovery for people with opioid use disorder? The HEAL initiative overall is funding a body of work looking specifically at recovery, looking at how do you support people in their recovery and how do you support people in their recovery, particularly around something like medication for opioid use disorder? Because within the lay person's recovery community among 12-step communities, in some of them, not all of them, but they feel like recovery is, is really when you're handling it sort of on your own. So they don't consider someone to be in real recovery if they're using medication for opioid use disorder. And yet medication for opioid use disorder is absolutely critical for some people in being able to have full lives and work and parent and not use opioids or other drugs. And so there's a lot of work to be done in the whole space of recovery. And so they've devoted some funding for the HEAL initiative. Within the healing community study, we always had a focus on the whole continuum from someone who's at risk of an overdose, who's not in any kind of care, to getting them in care, to retaining them them in care, and then to having them in long-term sustained recovery. And all along that that continuum, making sure that we're keeping their risk for experiencing a fatal overdose as low as absolutely possible. And then Unionville could say a little bit more about recovery. And this is an area certainly where we partner with SAMHSA as well. Yeah. Now, um, thanks for that. You know, I think um, SAMHSA has been really focused on recovery for quite some time, but really, I think, in a very focused way over the past couple of years. SAMHSA, for the first time, has established an office of recovery. That is the first office of recovery across the the federal government to really help inform and bring in the voices of people with lived experience into just about everything that we do, you know, across grant programs, policies programs, and other activities. In addition, we have dedicated recovery-focused grant programs. So there's something called Building Communities of Recovery that helps to support the development and and really just the dissemination of recovery supports across communities, recovery community centers, recovery networks as a way of, you know, really bringing in that recovery piece. And then finally, many of our grant programs, um, uh, we have a peer recovery center of excellence. Many of the grant programs we have actually also then had reliable activities that Grant funds can be resourced, everything from peer support and worker, workers, you know, kind of coaches, specialists, they go by different names in different states, of recovery housing, other types of recovery supports. And so really to kind of to infuse recovery into just about everything we do. Recovery is one of the kind of overarching principles that the assistant secretary has set for SAMHSA. And so really it's just kind of baked into just about everything we do, understanding also that you know, people with lived experience make up an incredibly important part of the workforce and a way of, you know, helping to expand that workforce that um, we have seen 
have such challenges um, in terms of really helping people who have substance use disorders. We've gotten so in the weeds with the different aspects of the, the state of opioid use disorder in the country, um, different challenges and moments of progress. But it's a good moment to also chat about, you know, progress you've made in the study itself. The study launched in 2018, so it's been a few years now. So where are you meeting the study's goal and what are some of the biggest takeaways you've learned? So I think what we have demonstrated is how you can get um, greater uptake in communities for overdose education and naloxone distribution, for getting people started on medication for opioid use disorder and making it available and keeping them on it, and for safer prescribing. We have hundreds of strategies that communities have selected in those three areas that they've implemented across hundreds of organizations. We've demonstrated and with their hard work figured out how to develop a community-driven approach to understanding what your strengths and weaknesses are, what's happening with your drug crisis, what's happening with overdose events and fatalities, and putting together a really strong response strategy and implementing it. We know how to do that. We've demonstrated how to do that. We've developed thousands of materials to teach and train people how to do that. Where we are now is looking at what's the public health impact of that. And we are still in the process of collecting and looking at our data related to that. We actually have a manuscript that will be coming out soon that's going to look at and demonstrate that we were able to very successfully and significantly increase the distribution of naloxone in communities that were participating in the intervention versus those that were waiting to participate in the intervention at a later time. Our death data will be looking at the impact on overdose fatalities probably in in the month of June and have that available by the end of June. So that's a big outcome. But we're also starting to look at the impact we had on getting people started on medication and keeping people on medication and on decreasing risky prescribing within communities. So that's sort of in process and those kinds of findings will be coming out. Looking forward to it. What about you, Dr. Olson? I mean, Radana really summed it up well. I, I really just want to emphasize the lessons learned from the communication campaigns, but the, uh, also really from the community coalitions, like building those community coalitions and and figuring out how to not only bring people kind of a, you know to the table, but doing those linkages between the community and those community coalitions and the state, because ultimately a lot of the data pieces that the healing community study relies on comes from the state. And in the state level, uh, agencies aren't necessarily always kind of set up or designed to, to kind of connect in that way and, and look at these data kind of in the way that the healing community study is really doing. And, you know, one of the things that I just have been so impressed by is just that that coordination and collaboration through a community advisory board, through involvement of state leaders. And just the way that the, the study has really focused and been able to be kind of that focal point 
to bring everybody to the table in a very coordinated and collaborative way. That I think is something that is a huge lesson to be learned, you know, for other states that it sometimes really kind of takes that framework of like, let's get around really and everybody understanding that they have a role to play, you know, driving something forward that is also very concrete and can really have those public health impacts and particularly kind of whether it's naloxone, you know, MOUD initiation, you know, I think that the part of this is also that as, you know, as the data is coming in, that, you know, those lessons of how you kind of rally those, um, everyone around is, that that's a huge lesson learned. Yeah. Before I let you two go, we've made a lot of progress over the past few years, but we definitely need to keep pushing and there's always room for, for more. What work do we need to get to the next level in the realm of substance use and opioid use disorder? And also what keeps you hopeful that we can get there? So I'll say if, if there is such a thing, um, the healing community study is sort of the professional love of my life. It has brought together, I think, all of the different experiences that I've had. It's been an absolutely fantastic opportunity and such a privilege to be able to work with these scientists, but also with these communities and people that are so committed to really making a difference in this space. And I didn't get to go visit the first set of communities in person. I had to do all my visits virtually because of the COVID pandemic, but I am going around and visiting all of the 33 communities that are the second set of communities that are participating in the, in the intervention now. And their energy and their commitment is what gives me hope. I mean, boy, they have come together sometimes under really difficult circumstances with very little support, very little funding, and really leaned heavily into the study and been able to accomplish phenomenal things. And, you know, when I ask people what the study means to them, one person said, what the study means to me is hope. We were the forgotten community. We were the forgotten people. And the healing community study has come and not only brought resources, but brought a way for us to come together and work together and do things that needed to be done for our community as a whole. Um, not only have they done things around implementing some of the evidence-based practices, but other things like they applied for a grant and got funding to rehab a playground with new playground equipment. And you can start to see these little green shoots begin to take place in this community that had was an industrial town, right, and had lost the major businesses that had existed prior to that. And, and, and that's what really gives me energy and gives me hope for a better future. In terms of work we need to do, you know, from a scientific perspective, we need better treatments. We need better medications for all different types of substance use disorder. We don't have a medication that effectively works and is FDA approved yet for stimulants, for example. And we need to better understand how to address polysubstance use. We need better formulations of naloxone, new and different formulations of naloxone that will work in the reality of this polysubstance environment that we have. And, and we need to continue to work on stigma and to work on really having people 
who are struggling with substance use and their family members to be treated with respect and dignity in the same way that you treat people that are struggling with other types of health conditions. Yeah, I would uh, agree with so much of that. And just add that, you know, I, I think that the other piece that, that we need to to do is really kind of to take a lot of the lessons that, that have come out and that are coming out of the healing community study to scale and making sure that, you know, these are, whether it's through dissemination products, you know, kind of um, conferences, other ways of really being able to share all the lessons learned. You know, I think there are so many states as I've gone around to and talking with states now as part of our naloxone saturation plan work that SAMHSA is engaged in, really hearing that there are states, they are so poised because of the impact that the overdose crisis has had and, you know, kind of this evolution that is happening on the ground. They are so poised to really be able to make some um, significant steps and take some significant steps in the direction of the different pieces that we've been talking about. You know, I think it gives me really hope that the healthcare system and the public healthcare systems are really also stepping up and that it, it is that sweet spot, as Verdana mentioned, between public health healthcare and public safety, and that really to continue to push forward in that way so that as we're thinking about, you know, kind of when people talk about, you know, supply and demand reduction on the demand reduction end, that we also have the healthcare system and the public health system stepping up to really do their part. Because ultimately, I think, you know, as we've been talking about, you know, these are health conditions and whether it's polysubstance use and opiate use disorder, stimulate use disorder, their health conditions. And so making sure that we really have that health and public health response in a very coordinated way that crosses state and local communities is so incredibly important. And so I hope, as I mentioned, you know, my my younger colleagues that I see that, you know, kind of they are absolutely embracing that like, yes, this is this is important. This is a health condition. And as healthcare practitioners, we really need to be able to be part of that solution and be part of communities and community coalitions and really thinking holistically and comprehensively about what those the solutions are. Thank you both. I think that you've really humanized this issue. It's one that we'll continue to work on as a country. And I feel really reassured that we have leaders like you taking charge in some of the big strides that we're seeing. I could spend all day chatting with both of you. This is such an important issue, and I appreciate that we can highlight it on the show. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Melissa. As we wrap up today, I want to share a few resources that can help you or those you know who may be impacted by opioid and substance use disorder or misuse. You can contact SAMHSA's National Helpline to find treatment options for mental health and substance use disorders at 800-662-HELP or visit findtreatment.gov. If you or someone you know is struggling or in crisis, call or text the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. You can also chat the Lifeline at 988lifeline.org. If you want to keep an eye out for more updates with the Healing Community Study, go to healingcommunitystudy.org. Thanks for tuning in as always. Until next time, please share the show with your friends, subscribe, and follow. Thanks, y'all. Empathy Effect is a product of Forrest Marsh. 
You can reach us at Forsmarsh Media at Forsmarsh.com with any feedback, questions, or inquiries. If you want to know more about today's guest, are interested in participating with Forsmarsh, or becoming part of our community, check out our show notes for more information.